Hi, humans. It's another episode of the ever-growing, ever-popular coffee machine. This time, we decided to cloud your quarantine reality with a little escapism. With racing at a standstill, all professional sports, and life as we know it, we wanted to hop back in our time pods and frolic around the fields of yesteryear. And that's where you'll find us, at the intersection of discussion, intervention, and brain soup. Recapping the recent season of Formula One, Drive to Survive. We handpicked our favorite storylines, entangle ourselves in the very fabric that makes William Story's beard so mysterious, and poop out a product we think to be another apex that will soon be missed. Ride along, baby. Take our hands. And away we go. I've been, as you know, watching a lot of videos and I hear, well, not here because you told me, but you've been catching up on or rewatching Drive to Survive. Mm -hmm. You're missing your F1 fix, aren't you? Uh, Just racing in general, man. Every, doesn't every day almost feel like another week? Yes. Right? Like one more day without this is like another week without it. One more day without what? Racing. <sighs> I know. I know. Sim racing ain't doing it. You know? It's not. Okay. Well, okay. So here we go. Here we go. So, Let's hear it. Uh, what episode is this? Do we know? 20? Sure. Okay. All right, so episode 20, we figured, since we got a lot of time on our hands, and it's a good time to delve into F1 Drive to Survive, because uh, I thought that was a tremendous little docu-series, and it's like the first time in racing that it's given it like a proper showing of like all the storylines that go on in racing, which that's what struck me, you know, like... The first season was, uh, I think they were trying to catch their groove and like be less Hollywood cinematic and more like yep. dive into the storylines. And they did that, but they were also kind of like, you know, they border up on the line of like the audio isn't synced up in the race car properly. And like sometimes the radio messages, yeah. they edited it in at a weird time. But the second season was really good, I thought. They, they cleaned a lot of it up. It was interesting too, though, if you like through the season, there were some ways they were doing the shows and they stopped doing certain things. Like when they did the starts in the beginning of the series for the first few episodes, they were doing the, like the noise with the lights, like, and those disappeared. So either, uh, different directors decided that they didn't like that, or they got some feedback and they already had, you know, kind of finished those shows and we're like, Ooh, we need to take those out. This is kind of lame, which it was lame. I mean, the, the whole noise with the lights is like, but didn't, doesn't formula one do that now? No, I don't think so. I think they do. I don't think so. I think they, okay. 
You're yes, but they are. They're changing shit. That's the yeah. main mid mid series. They are changing mm. how things like it was like an abrupt like uh, from like episode maybe four to five or three to four. It was like gone. Right. So all in all, I thought the season was was really good. The race season in general, I thought was there was so many so many storylines, so much going on um, with obviously the driver change of uh, Ricardo to to Renault leaving right. Red Bull was huge. Um, huge. All the news with Haas going on was was a really big deal. Um, and then that second Red Bull seat when Ricardo vacated and uh, you had Pierre Gasly move up to it. Uh, the whole fight for that, which we'll get into, um, it was all there. And then obviously, uh, Charles Leclerc moving to Ferrari, being teammates with Sebastian Vettel, four-time, four-time world champion? Four-time, four-time. Big deal. Big deal representing like kind of this generation of younger drivers um, right. coming into that seat. It was all, it was really cool. So let's start with uh, Daniel Ricardo to Renault. And what struck me, the biggest thing is like, they're showing him go into the Renault offices for the first time, their headquarters. And it looks like this dreary, right? dreary, like legal offices building. It looks like a French Formula One team of what you think it would be. Yeah. Kind of. I mean, it really does, right? It's very like straightforward, nothing boring, fancy. like nothing, you know, kind of to the point. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting, interesting because I understand why he made the change on at least the reason why he said he made the change. Mm -hmm. But man, I just don't know how he fits in that culture. I know. See, that's, that's what struck me right away, the stark contrast between Renault and what they represent right there in that one shot versus you see, you know, other shots of, of Red Bull when, when Albon is there and the bright, the flashy, they're, yeah. they are like new age. And it's like, yeah, is this going to fit? Like, why, why did he leave Red Bull to go to Renault? And it's like... Was what there, do you think it is? Okay. Well, he says, you know, uh, well, what does he say? What is, what is his he answer said, to this? Well, he said a few things, but one of the biggest things, I think the biggest one is he had been in the Red Bull system for forever and he just wanted a change of, uh, a change of scenery, a change of change something different, a new challenge. Huh. Uh, I also think he said it in a different way, but I think he thought this was the best way for him to win a world title. Interesting. Do you think he saw any like long-term advancements that Renault make going into like, originally it was like 2021 when the regulations would have changed? I think he was looking towards that. I'm sure it was something, you know, internally that he got some information just no different than when Hamilton made the surprise switch from McLaren to Mercedes. Right. right. You know, and Nikki Lauda was a, a big part of that, that change uh, to get him over to Mercedes. And I think. Was there anybody I, that influenced Ricardo to go to Renault? Like similar to the way that I know, Nikki did not that? that I know of and not that um, he says, 
I think being a, a part of a true auto manufacturer as a, like a, a factory, a manufacturer. Yeah. I think, uh, and the budget they have, I think definitely weighed into it. I don't think it was, Oh, I need to make my money. I'm going to get this big contract. He doesn't seem like that type of guy. He seems like, you know, he's genuinely thinks outside of Red Bull, like this is the, in the opportunities that he had, this mm-hmm. is the best, um, world title. Now I personally think that he knows whether I don't, I, I know he can, knows he can beat max, but I think he knows as long as Helmut's there, max is number one that they they're putting their marbles, Red Bull's putting their marbles all in max. And, and, that- and I think internally it's, you know, it's like Horner says, you know, he doesn't want to fight. He doesn't want to, he's backing away from the fight. And I don't think he's necessarily backing away from the fight. I think he just knows that he's in a position where he will always be number two, even if they say he's not. Yeah. I just think, and he is maybe, maybe Christian doesn't put him as number two, but Helmut does. And Helmut has a lot of power in that team. That's what I kind of think too. I think that he is, he's running from a fight that he ultimately can't win. And it's not because he doesn't, he can't beat Max Verstappen. Mono, no, he's pre- he proved him he could. He proved him he could, but in the Red Bull system, when they have their guy picked out, when you race with a guy that's clearly the number one, and he's younger, and he has a lot of talent, and he's aggressive, that's a tough, that's a tough thing to go up against. And a question, question for you. Yeah. Does this show you how good Ricardo is, seeing what he was able to do against Vettel right away, right? Seeing what he's been able to do against Verstappen. And then you have Gasly and Albon. Uh, yeah. That that can't even They're come They're not even close. close. Albon is getting closer, but well, well, they can't even come close to Max. What does it say, too, about Nico Hulkenberg? Because you oh, say how good Ricardo all, is. They've always said it. They've always said yeah. that Nico is that good. He is that good. I mean, and for the the majority of the, the beginning of the season, Nico had his number. He had yeah. Ricardo's number. Granted, I think a little was the car, knowing the car. How long how long do you give a driver to catch up with all that? With the, that with level? a new car, new team. Yeah, at that with, level. With the limited testing, if if it was me, I mean, I think you give them quarter of the season max yeah so he was right on that precipice yeah i think and at that level you know you got to be able to adapt because in in yes hulkenberg understands the basic fundamental feelings of how that car is and what it likes Mm -hmm. right now he's gonna but every year there's a different car yes the feeling may be the same because of some of the ethos they have in building a car right but the car is going to be different. Yeah. So, you know, they're still having to learn something new too. Sure. They're learning different grip levels. I mean, if that car all, all of a sudden is a half second faster, a second faster. But it's also the the personal, they're, they're, it's also ahead. the personal relationships too. And like the philosophy Huge. of the team that Huge. I think. And, 
and your relationship with your engineers and your, your head engineer and yeah. understanding that when you say you want this from the car, that they're going to go in the direction or do the things that you're used to. So if you're right. saying, Hey, you know, I have a little bit of, you know, mid corner, uh, let's just call it mid corner, mid speed understeer. Right. And their first, uh, first thing they go to is a wing adjustment when the engineer used to go to maybe would do a, uh, a bar or, or a little bit of rake or maybe a little bit of shock adjustment. Right. Then, yeah, you're feeling and you're, you're understanding and communication. You, you have a time period where you're like, well, usually we would, I would do this. Well, and the engineer is like, okay, yeah, that's the idea, but we'd like to go this direction. Yeah. So, you know, having that understanding, you know, it's no different than having a teammate, um, in endurance racing where you have a teammate that likes a car that is one way and, and you like it another way. And you kind of have to find something that works the best to make right. the car as fast as you can for the two of you. Cause you both have to drive it. Yeah. Now the engineer doesn't have to drive it, but they're there to help you get the most out of you in the car. So you have to find a way for you guys to work together to get the most out of that package. Cause in the end, right. His job is to maximize and get every little bit out of the car. That's it. That's all you can do. That's, that's all you can do. You can't do anything special. Yeah. And it is the engineer to continue to get the most out of what the car is capable from an engineering perspective. Yeah. Right. So if the driver's saying, I feel like I can carry another mile an hour, two mile an hour on the entry of this corner and still keep my mid corners be an exit, but I need this from the car. Okay. The engineer yeah. now needs to come to the table and see if that's possible. Sure. If the and, and then if it is, the driver needs to extract that and improve and do it. Yeah. So yeah, you it, have it to is. rub up with that limit. The thing is there's consequences in formula one too, which Huge. I understand too, which is, you know, you don't have a lot of testing. You can't, you know, bending one of those cars right. is really, I mean, you see, we'll talk about gasoline a little bit, but the wrecks that he had at the beginning of the season definitely took a toll on his, you know, head game. So it's like for I Ricardo, good, I, have, I have a good take on gasly, I think. Okay. Let's wait for that though. So, um, with Ricardo, you just can't help but notice when he's fighting for like 11th and 10th place. Meanwhile, at Red Bull, you're fighting for race wins, fighting for race wins, podiums, fighting with Max. And it's like, however bad that was at Red Bull, how bad was it really? And you, you have to wonder if he was willing to make that jump and foresee the future that he could be competing for 10th place. How bad could it could it really have been that we didn't know about? You know, um, what was the bias? What was he up against? You yeah, know, well, and we'll never know. We'll never know. But to make that big of a move, where you know that you're not going to be competitive the way, and I don't know. Do you think that he was promised things that they just didn't deliver on? There's yes a, and no. Are you talking about Red Bull? Uh, no, with with Renault. With the no, I don't think so. I think. Um, I think his was, I think his plan is a long-term plan. I yeah. think a lot of it, you know, was riding on 2021, which now isn't going to happen. Right. Yeah. Um, but you know, as we saw in preseason testing this year, they look like they made a pretty big jump and could be the leaders in the best of the rest. 
So who's to say, and he said he was really confident in the car. So who's to say that in some regards, there is a difference between being a consistent fifth, sixth, if you get the right track, you're on the fighting for the podium. Right. You know, if, if it's really right, you get a win or two a year because they are so good with strategy. What's the difference from being a, you know, seventh, eighth place car that is able to fight with the Red Bulls on the right day at the, like we saw at Monza, right. Mm-hmm. Um, this past year, um, and who's, and then get a couple podiums, right? Like what's the, when you know, already know you're a step behind, like mentally, what, is there a big difference yeah. between that? When you know, you're not fighting for a race win every weekend, you know, I think as long as you're a strong men, if you're strong mentally and you can go into that and understand where your baseline is yeah, and say, look, the expectation is this, we have the ability to hopefully achieve this best case scenario, you know? And if you're at the, and you know, you're a B team still, but you're moving forward and you can go and destroy everyone or not destroy, but like consistently be the front B team. And yeah, you know, maybe beat one of the Red Bulls and maybe beat Albon in the points this year. And now, you know, you guys are finishing fourth in the constructor standings and you finish sixth in the champion, you know, in the world championship standings. Yeah. You know, that's a big jump. You know, he got a big increase in pay and who's to say they don't make in 2021 because yeah. they know how to win F1 world titles. They've done it before. That's true. So, yeah, it, you know, it's kind it's of a matter a, of bringing magic back coming into a race weekend it's like the head the headspace you're in is like maximize the a factors and hope the b factors fall your way you know and in practice or in theory i think that's we can talk about it like that's what you need to do but in practice i think that's probably really hard as a formula one driver and especially like you look at a williams and george russell is doing that right now and it's like Russell is handling it with such professionalism Yeah, because he knows that he is as good or better than Albon and Norris, right? He beat them in a single make series in, in, in just as equal team level. The three teams that they were in Albon was maybe in the, in the worst of the three. Yeah. If you were to put resources and, and money and past results, well, so, you, you know, he knows, and he's even said it in an interview before he was like, I, I belong up there. Like I should be fighting. Like if, if, if Albon's fighting for podiums now, because he's in the right team, I should be fighting for podiums. Yeah. And you know, that's a, it's weird because it's, uh, that's one of the, not to get too far off track here, but that's one of the downsides. It can be one of the downsides of being in a development program at the wrong time. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, a Mercedes development driver. The Mercedes. And who, was up, and who was up before him? Ocon. Yeah. And then Ocon doesn't get his chance with Mercedes. They're th- you know, the rumor is, oh, they're going to put him with Renault to get him back in a car before 2021. And then he was going to go back and mm-hmm. race with Mercedes in 2021. And then, so what's Russell? Is Russell like, wait, so am I ever going to be in a Mercedes? Do I have to go to a Renault? Do I have to wait for Hamilton to retire? Or am I going to get subbed out somewhere? Yeah. 
it's tricky with Mercedes because they don't really have like a B team like Red Bull does. No, it's like, are they going to try to find a spot for him in, in the near future? Yeah. And him to be lined up with Norris. And why? Okay. So going back to Ricardo, why, why not when you're making a decision to leave Red Bull, why not McLaren? You know, who how said, did, who's, how, huh? Why, why not McLaren? Yeah. Why not McLaren? How did Renault present like more of a possibility, more of a long-term future? I uh, think, think it goes to like was the, signs the there was signs there first. Do you think? Do you think that Renault would have been the prettier girl in that scenario? Renault I v think, McLaren. I think it, I think it boils down to being with a manufacturer. Yeah. In the resources, like a bigger manufacturer. Bigger, but resources and funding. You know, if McLaren loses a title, big title sponsor. Right, their budget drops drastically. Yeah, Renault can in, can bring in more money from from their man, auto, from the auto manufacturer side if they need to. But it's like the rich history of racing with McLaren. It is, you know, like it, and it's that's like how do you... it's in, that's that's enticing, but it's only enticing if McLaren means that much to you. Yeah, or not, right? If, if McLaren, like, if I was in that situation, I'm not sure I'd go race with McLaren. Is it worthwhile as a young driver to have any vested interest in any, you know, a Red Bull program or a Renault program? As a development driver? Uh, yeah, and even having yeah. any, like... It depends, though. I mean, in some of these Mercedes. situations, they would, without that, would, like... And I think Ricardo brings it up. Without that support from Red Bull, he would have never made it to Formula One. They right. didn't have the financial means. So yes, and in, in in those circumstances, yes. I mean, sometimes you're like you need it. Um, you know, Norris didn't need it from McLaren. He would have gone all the way, right? So did he have any that that was just purely like his love for the brand that went that. So he no, chose you don't to know. I mean, you just, maybe it's like you. It's you don't know what's in his contract, right? Maybe they maybe they say maybe in the contract of his development that, that if he finishes top two or three in in his first year in GP two or whatever it was, mm -hmm. you we're guaranteeing you a ride with our F, F1 team. We don't know, right? We don't. We haven't seen the contract. You right. can only assume, but. As a British driver, being a part of that McLaren development program yeah. is huge. And like Lewis. It's huge. I mean, that's, that, what, I mean, that's the thing about Lewis. Yeah. He would have never made it to Formula One if it wasn't for McLaren. I think it's a smart move if you're a British driver to like, he, the thing is that you got to give credit to Lando for is if, if he did have a contract early on with McLaren, that that was always the route, then they were the whole time in his junior Formula car career, they were struggling big time. So, yeah. and, and I remember well, seeing the, that. I remember seeing and, and thinking to myself, like, man, even if you get to Formula One, like, you're going to a team that's, they're finishing 18th and 19th. Or, like, that's yeah. where they're qualifying. You know, like, how does that make you excited about your future? But you play the long game. And by the time Lando gets into the seat, boom, they're competing for top fives. Yeah. And, you know, McLaren is really good about, not having a big group of drivers. They usually find these drivers at a very young age 
mold, help mold them, really help develop them. And they have a long history of, even if they don't make it to formula one, these guys go on to be professional sports car drivers, or, you know, I, I think they, they have a long history of helping these young drivers. I could be wrong. And I'd love, you know, maybe it's one of those things where if you're in the mix in England, you know, you kind of see it's a little bit different if you're one of those drivers coming up, but you know, from the outside looking in, it seems like they do a really good job and have had a history of uh, doing a very good job of bringing these drivers up, whether or not they make it to formula one or not, but mentoring them and, and getting them to the point, kind of like we talked on uh, our Friday Instagram live cast is, you know, they're able to uh, bring them into professional racing and have a career. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move on to the rich. We're just going to take a hard left here. Um, let's do it. The rich energy Haas F1 oh, yes. implosion. There are so many secrets hidden in William Story's beard. And I got to give credit to my girlfriend for that one. But there is. You look at him with the velvet suit, the long beard, rich energy. Tell How me. How do you not call bullshit the first time you meet that guy? I know. And How so, do you not call bullshit? How does Gene Haas not go, I call bullshit. I don't need you a part of my brand. Yeah. You are too, you're too rock star volatile for, for what we are. The question is, are they, were they a legitimate energy drink company? From my understanding, no. <laughs> They went to the, the bank balance from like 2016 to 2018 or whatever. And it went from like 312 pounds to like 750 pounds. Like not million. Just. What? Yeah. Yeah. Like nothing. The guy said in the episode, I am personally guaranteeing this amount of money to the team yeah 35 million corporation he said i am personally yeah yeah what what gene haas ended up saying is they lost out on about 60 million dollars in sponsorship due to that unraveling and what what's interesting is normally sponsorships don't hinge on performance you know that's not the that's not really the return that you get into the business for that's a plus you know, if you're running up front, that's another plus that sprinkles on top. Yeah. But the activations, the exposure, that's what you get out of this. But apparently Rich Energy was, they, they were hell bent on being a better energy drink company than Red Bull. It just seems like a fantasy. It seems fantasy. like a fantasy world of like, wow, you see a, an F1 race once, you see how cool Red Bull is and you're like, I have money. That sounds like a good idea. I'm going to start an energy energy drink company. I'm going to enter Formula One, and I'm going to prove we are a better drink than them because we beat them on track. It's just weird. What are you, better in taste? I don't get it. Here's here's the deal. Even if you think you have a better tasting energy drink than Red Bull, you will never be as cool. Never. Or cooler than they are. You're just not going to be. They have such a big spread. They're Think in everything. It. Monster is their base, like of the cool brand factor, right? Monster is for sure at their level. It's different, 
They still they, don't. They, they share a lot. They share a lot of similarities, mm-hmm. and then they also share, right? So like Red Bull normally don't have the girls at events that are you know dressed kind of scandedly. Yeah. And, you know, Monster goes that route, and they've caught some flack, and they they kind of like look like, uh, you know, we support these women and what they want to do, and they normally go on to be, you know, success, successful business people after they do this for a few years and, um, start their own careers or become, you know, moms. And, you know, some of them are actually already in the sport and do it to continue to be able to like be mm-hmm. a part of that culture. So some of the, like the monster Energy girls and Supercross were already in relationships with some of the riders. Yeah before becoming one yeah and then a lot of the rioters meet them and they there's <laughs> lots of them that have gone on to get married to monster energy girls but yeah. you know the the brands are those two brands i think in this day day and age there's not you're there's not room for another one at no. that top tier you have rock star right that kind of hovers around of like yeah that kind lower. Of having all the different options and then the rest are all the healthy the healthy, you know, energy drink type companies. And it's like, I don't know. Yeah. With that market, why even get into it? Why not try something else that parallels with racing instead of an energy drink? I I just don't get why it has to be that, you know? Yeah. Uh, And to take on Red Bull, just, it doesn't make sense to me, you know? But like the other question is, what was it then? Was it just like a shattered dream or was it, something else did it provide uh um, did he have a laundry are you saying did he have a laundry mat i'm nope. asking the question okay uh possible hey i mean racing sounds like a really good way to do that well there's been a lot of history of uh, a lot of people using racing as their personal laundry mat <laughs> yeah. and uh, governments there's been governments that have used racing as a laundry mat what name a few uh, I don't like, no. It doesn't, you don't get in don't trouble. Don't know who's listening. I don't want to be on a list. You don't get in trouble for this. You just. Starts with the, starts with the V. We know it. It's far we south of it. us. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, that didn't go over well. No, that um, didn't work out so well. Why does it work though? Why does racing work as uh, a laundromat? Well, it's very expensive. So lots of money can be done, can be washed. I, I, I feel like I only know this because of the Ozarks people. Okay. <laughs> Do not know anything other all my history and knowledge of this directly comes from the Ozarks on Netflix. No, you're an I, expert on this. That's why I'm asking you pseudo expert on this. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, going to business school, I mean, you kind of do understand this a little bit. Um, no, it's the amount of money, right? the amount of money that you spend and the biggest thing in motorsports, what we're able to do um, in the specific instant we were talking about is you're able to overpay, right? And the way you can work contracts and you can overpay for something, get reimbursed, bring that money back as a reimbursement. Or if you're doing it yourself, it's an easy way to just have line items on an invoice that are very hard to track. Yeah. Yeah. Line items that can be broken. And the cost associated with it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's something to, and it's something tangible, right? Like 
you're actually race race car and you're going to these events and you're there, you're seen to be there. Right. Yeah. There's no one really looking into a whole lot of you like, Oh, is this a real business? Yeah. It's a real business. It's a race team. Now, now the money spent on the race team may be a little inflated. Right. Right. It's not like, so, like you can have a race team. No, it doesn't make economic sense. It's, it's very, if you own your own race team, it is not difficult to say the budget's 4 million when you really can do it for two. Hmm. It, when you get to the levels that this was kind of, right. you know. And hide happened. it in yeah. layers, layers, layers. Of, of parts, it, just activations at an event. Yes. Easy, yes. easy. So yep. do you think that it could have been that? Is there any evidence to suggest that? No, I don't know. And I haven't really paid attention to it. I'm sure it's a possibility, but I think I've just, the only articles I've read about it is like the hint at like, it's open to interpretation. There's no evidence, but you know, you have to really ask, you know, is it just shattered dreams? Like, is it just the hope of beating Red Bull? It could have been. He has that personality of like, it's just shattered dreams, you know? Oh, I wanted to start this brand and maybe if something you know, got going, I'd actually put money in and try to start this thing really, you know, but it didn't. Yeah. So I don't think we'll ever really know the answer to that. Cause that guy's pretty much been banned from racing. Has he? Well, socially, I think, yeah, I think no one would touch him with a 10 foot stick. Apparently before ha- uh, Haas got involved with rich energy, they, um, I think it was at Coda or something. He had a sit down meeting with Williams yeah, I read about that. Uh, with with Claire Williams and and uh he stood them up at like a steak dinner, didn't show up, and then next thing they knew that he was signing with Haas. And like Williams thought like they had some type of deal because this is late. This is October, you know. This is well, late I'm sure the- I'm sure I'm not I wouldn't be surprised if that was a little bit of like to leverage, right? Yeah. We don't know. Like, oh yeah. Because he seemed like he was a guy on Twitter a lot, right? Posting things. Who says, you know, he's in conversations with um, Haas the whole time. And then he posts a picture or a little little niblet of, hey, I'm going and meeting with Williams or whatever. Or just gets out enough. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. And it's just enough to maybe raise, to get uh, a little bit more sure. for his money. Who knows? Who knows? So, Who knows? so then you get into. We've talked, first of all, we've talked way too much about this guy. What, just racing as a whole? No, this guy, the rich energy dude. He doesn't deserve this much <laughs> You're right. attention. You're right. Moving on to Haas. Yeah. So they have a unique business model where they're kind of, they're able to plug and play a little bit different Love items and, and instead of having to develop everything with such extraordinary costs, which yeah. is pretty cool. You have Gunther Steiner as team principal and... Kevin Magnuson, Roman Grosjean as the drivers. From what Drive to Survive covered, it seemed like a shit show. Not only that, the internal car launch that they had at like Haas headquarters or whatever was a joke. <laughs> it, it was a, it was it was a nightmare. It was like basically yeah. Steiner roasting Roman Grosjean. Like hopefully he doesn't weird. crash this car. It was weird as a launch. I think it's his personality. It is. It's personality. But what I mean, there's a lot going on there. 
And I imagine it has to be tense racing for kind of that type of energy that you're getting as a team principal, kind of over overhead like that. You, you, we're only seeing the Gunther Steiner that Netflix is covering. We're not no, seeing... And, and, and the Gunther Steiner that Netflix wants to show you. Right, right. And it's edited to take yes. all maybe the worst parts that he says. There could be a lot of good. And it seemed like when it went back to his, his family life, that there, it, he seemed like a normal guy. He just wants to be in racing. He has experience in this. And that he wants, he just, he knows he can lead Haas to a better future. And that's what he wants to do. I don't, I don't know him personally. I've never met him before, but I do know people that know him personally. And I haven't asked him about the Netflix stuff, but I've never once heard a bad thing in any way, shape or form. Yeah. Uh, if, if anything, I hear that, you know, he is passionate, but it comes from like, he's a true racer. Like he's a true and that passion comes from like a guy, you know, similar, I mean, similar, we'll get to there, but like a similar to a Horner or a Toto, when you see these guys, man, they get emotional. You look yeah. at Toto, man, you know, he's known for that, you know, that kind of like slam yeah. on the desk that like, let's go, which I love. He's yeah. probably my favorite team principal ever in Formula One. And I think Christian is right there. I'm right there with Christian because I, I think these guys are, pure racers and a lot of them raced and were racers, right? Yeah. Not like some of the Ferrari folk they've had, which are just executives that get put in these roles. And, you know, formula one was built on these pure racers and, you know, like a Ron Dennis and, and the, you know, everyone, you know? Yeah. And I think these guys, and one of the reasons why they've been so successful is they were able to, were able to find and bring these people that are pure racers and they get it yeah and i think steiner is that and he wears his emotions on his sleeve man sometimes it looks like you're a dickhead and sometimes it looks like you're just passionate yeah it is what it is so it looked like they got totally lost during the season after australia they they had a good car in australia and then it just there was no race pace in the car you know at red bull ring kevin was p5 that was like a really good showing for them but other than that, it's like the race pace wasn't there and they were trying different, like they went back at Silverstone, they went back to, uh, I think Roman chose to go back to uh, the Australia spec car yeah. and like test. They were literally treating the race as a test because they so, were just so off. This is my question to you. Yeah. And you may not have an answer because obviously you or I have never have competed in anything this technologically sure. advanced or at this level. But we have worked with some great engineers and both have been involved in cars where you can change a lot of to me the question is how at this level are you going race to race session to session and you still do not understand how the car works good or bad the car may suck yeah but you i think it boils down to some of the engineering staff they have or maybe the car designer or maybe it is a fault of the kind of plug and play you're talking about with the parts yeah. because they're not the ones building the entire car that they don't have an understanding. It baffles me that they're, they're literally three quarters of the way in the season and they still don't understand how these cars work. You hear the yeah. drivers bounces like, all over yeah, the place. It, you know, it, the track changed 10 degrees and man, you know, 
the car just changed 180 degrees on us. Yeah. And you're like, wait a minute, you know, the track temperature is changing. How do you not have the data that tells you when the track changes and cools off 10 degrees that you need to do X to the car to continue to keep it in its window? Yeah. Like even on the most basic go-kart level stuff that we do, or I do these days and the, you know, basic formula car stuff I do these days, we understand when the track changes yeah. that temperature, what we need to do, whether it's tire pressure, aero, mechanical, we know what we need to do to continue to keep optimum performance. Yeah. It's a How, highly technical car too. It is, but that's why you're at that level. Right, right. But like right? who are who are the engineers there? How do they get well, there? And I'm, I'm sure, sure they're very, very good. I'm sure they're very, very good. Oh, 100%. You but, don't make it to that level without having skill and experience. Yes. But then it's kind of like, it, go, it comes back to like a structural perspective. You know, like, why do you not have a program for that? Or is it literally that the car is so Frankenstein together that you tried to create that plan and it, it it's not possible because it's My, so unpredictable? My feeling, it's more that. It's more, it's so Frankenstein together that you don't have someone that because they design every they don't bit get of it. the car that they don't fully understand how everything works in harmony, together. In harmony, it's yeah. the only way I could think that you don't have an understanding. Yeah. Because you're like, oh, we just got this part that fits on the car. Okay. I know this is super rudimentary as the way I'm describing it, but you know what I mean? It's, yeah. It, this part wasn't designed to fit with, designed to work specifically with this part necessarily. And maybe you don't know the philosophy behind why they did what they did when they created that component. You or know? they do, but they're only told what they're going to be told. Meant to by be who. told. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They're not told when it gets 10 degrees hotter, like, Oh my God. Yeah. Like you have to yeah, do this. Oh, that's right. We forgot to tell you. I mean, I do it all the time. Even myself, I do that sometimes where yeah. I'm like, you'll tell someone and you walk them through the entire process and you're like, wait a minute, I forgot to say, if this happens, you're supposed to do this also. Right. Cause you're, you're giving them, if it's perfect, how you're supposed to do it. Yes. It's hard. It's hard to be as a communicator. It's hard to be that multidimensional that you would know all of the things that could happen and that, Oh shit. Like, yeah, I forgot to tell right. you, you know, like on a day like this, you have to make th these amount of changes. So right. that's interesting. But then you have the drivers and they re-signed with the same guys. Do yeah. What do you think about that? How can it, they man. continue with that driver pairing? I don't know how you continue with Grosjean. I'm not sure Magnuson deserves it over. Well no. I think he definitely belongs there more than Grosjean does. And I don't think you can just wake up and, and try two new drivers. I think you do need that experience, someone to help guide another driver. But like I've said, this is something I've always thought since Haas has been involved in Formula One, that they've done a poor job at being, and maybe they don't want to be this. And that's totally cool. That's like, it's, it's their prerogative. Yeah. But I think they've done a horrible job at supporting young American drivers. For sure. Not that they need to be bring an American driver into Formula One, but they have two development drivers, right? And it's like, wait, who? we're not helping young Americans? 
come up through the system, even if you can't, even if you don't bring them into your team, right. But you have an opportunity to help these young drivers. Like who's their newest one. I'm going to pull this up on my phone. I mean, I, I follow like Pietro Fittipaldi, um, has been doing that. Louis Delatraz. 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 Delatraz is legit, man. He's good. But he's like, good, but he's also, what, this is his third year in F2. Well, and exactly. But that's my point is why are we not supporting? Right. And I don't think he needs it. I, I don't think Delatraz needs it like some of these other drivers do. And that's what kind of, I, I see your frustration there. It's like, it doesn't have to be all Americans. It would be nice if that were the case. Well, they had Ferrucci for a while, right? They did. That makes sense. I didn't understand, but whatever. Why but not? that's a but that's what? Why not? I just did, didn't make sense. Yeah. The results didn't make sense to Right, right. But he was American. Why he was Yeah, but there were way better Americans. You're telling me he doesn't go to Askew and Askew ask says no to that two years right, ago? Right. Doesn't say, oh, yeah, I'll be a part of your development program. That's true. Come on. Yeah. Kirkwood, you're telling me Kirkwood, if you don't sign Kirkwood right now? Do you think that if you want to have any development ladder system, what they may run into is that there's just the pool of American drivers that are racing in Europe is very, very small. And then it's like, but then you pull potentially from America, but they're not racing in Europe. And that a lot, there's a leap, there's a hurdle there logistically. There is, but but there's drivers that have been able to do it. And a lot of it boils down to the reason why I ask you didn't stay in Europe and keep doing it over, over there is budget. Reason why Kirkwood doesn't go over there is because of budget. Yeah. And the commitment. And some of them don't want to live over there. And I get that. Yeah. And if formula one's not your goal, don't, don't even do it. Don't waste, don't waste other people's opportunities for something you really don't want to do. Sure. But if there's drivers out there that are talented, that are that level, that could have an opportunity. You look at Joseph Newgarden, right? The kid was a strong open wheel in, in the development in the, all the way up through the development series. Right. But he kind of went to Europe on his own. Imagine if he yeah. was a part of a development program yeah. that could have really harnessed him. Who says he's not in Formula One? Who says? Who are you talking about? He could be. At, I think Newgarden. Uh, oh, I think yeah, he yeah. could go to Formula One tomorrow, and 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 be right on par. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Did he do? He didn't compete in GP3. Yeah, he did. He did. Did yeah. not do well. Yeah, you're right. You're right. He did. That's why he kind of came back over. But that. But. That's like, that's the thing where it's like, if you have a driver, it's so tough if you don't have the infrastructure as a driver, yeah. the support system to just go over there I, I, and you're over me. there by yourself. Believe and, me. You know, First I, you know, I don't know what his support system was like when he was over there, but you know, if you're, even if you're with the right team, you know, if you're over there and you're not, you don't have the right people around you, man, it's hard. It's you don't speak the language of the team and your teammate speaks the language of the team and they're able to have these more personal connections. Sure. And you feel like you can't really personally connect because yes, you, your engineer and you both speak English and the team owner still speaks English, but you can't have the same jokes because the lost in translation and your teammate is able to do that. And then they create a connection and then you feel like you're, you know, inferior yeah. to them. It plays with your mind. We you don't have your support system, your, your cheerleaders behind you telling you you got this telling you you're as good as what you really are yeah he's proven that yeah he's proven that man he's proven how good he is 
I felt that firsthand when I was over in Europe. That was like, oh, dude, the key You're thing. Telling me. Yeah, dude, that was the key thing that I missed the most because I just didn't have any support. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just trying to figure it all out as I went. You know, okay. and- I have a great, great mini story for you, and it's perfect for this. So, when I moved to Switzerland, I moved there. I took my last final exam. My mom picked me up moved to Switzerland, didn't even go to my high school graduation. Okay. When I went there, I was a factory driver for Swiss Hutless, but we did have to pay. I had to pay a little bit, but part of it, I, I got a pretty big discount. Um, but I lived there for free, but I had to work in the factory yeah. and kind of do things for the factory. So like I had to go and test with like, um, one of the, like fam, like the family that owned Swiss Hutless, they had a young driver. I was 12 years old. So I had to like go and mechanic form and help coach him and stuff where I had to go to like, they were supported by Bridgestone and we lived above the offices of Bridgestone Europe. Um, so we would have to go do things for Bridgestone at races that we weren't competing at. Yeah. You know, this isn't like boss Lammers, my teammate, he wasn't having to do that stuff, but some of us younger drivers that were, you know, being supported by the team a little bit, you know, you know, you're a B team guy, right? Like yeah. you have to, you have to earn your, earn your keep. You got to go to the extra mile. Respect. So we were at this, this regional race and me and this other driver were not messing around, but we thought we had done what we were supposed to do. And we kind of went off and did our own thing. And the team owner got wind of it or not team owner, the owner of Swiss Atlas got wind of it. Wasn't happy, pulled us into a uh, meeting room and was just like, I think we're done with you guys. We're like, wait, what? What? <laughs> like, yeah, I don't think you're going to the next race. Whoa. And internally, I'm like, wait, but I still kind of pay. Like, like this means you just don't want me here. And it was kind of like that. Now really? we got it all sorted. I did like big apology tour and like, you know, showed my commitment and all that. But yeah, it was super stressful. And Damn. I had no one, you know, I lived, I was eight, 17, 18 years old, lived in Switzerland by myself. I had roommates, but sometimes I didn't because they were in school or went back home. So there was weeks I was living in this apartment by myself, no car, didn't speak the language, didn't make a ton of friends in the factory. And then, you know, they would go off and go see their family. So if it was an odd week where we didn't have a lot of races and the race team went back home, you know, or it was just an odd week. I mean, I'm literally in Switzerland with no friends by myself with a bike. It's brutal working in the factory, speaking to one person a day. It's hard, dude. Super isolating. Super isolating. Yeah. 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 When I, shit, man. I mean, yeah, we could go far into this. So for another day. Another day, another story. Another day, another story. Um, So we move on to probably, yeah, one of the most interesting storylines that happened in 2019 which was Pierre Gasly moving up to the Red Bull seat that was vacated by Daniel Ricciardo and pretty much straight away from winter testing didn't have near the pace that Max did binned it twice we see at the end of the year the the damage you know per driver and do you remember Pierre's yeah what was it the damage at the end of the year? Yeah. It was like 2 million euro. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's not horrible. 
It's not horrible, but there was a list someone put out of all the drivers. It is a stark difference to uh, any of the Ferrari, Mercedes, uh, Verstappen, Ricardo guys like that. Yeah. So that, take, like, take, taking a winglet off or whatever in battle or, you know, whatever, you know, doing a rim side to side, you know, yeah, it's easy to rack up a hundred, 200,000, but it seems like a lot of those guys are around that hundred, 200, half million max. They take care of the car. Get up to a 2 million is you're doing some work. Yeah. It's either big shunts or it's a lot of wrecks. It was big. Sh- I mean, at the beginning they it was big, big shunts. Ones. Yeah. Um, they were big ones. And, it happened in winter testing when he goes into the season. This is what I think is most interesting is that so he he wrecks twice in preseason testing, which probably severely limits him in the amount of driving he can actually do. Definitely. Before he gets into to Australia. So once he gets to Australia, he's just trying to it's almost like a glorified test and he's just trying to get on pace, find out how he can be as quick as Max let alone when you're racing for Red Bull, every time you get in the car, it's a test. Like, like not a test, like it is a, an exam. You better it's finish exam. well. Yep. And every movement that you make, everything you do is, it's meticulously looked at. And obviously from Red Bull's side of things, they weren't seeing any real progression, nothing exciting. If you're finishing seventh, we don't want to just see you driving there behind sixth place, never making any move, never really going out of your way to do something extraordinary because that's what Red Bull drivers are. They're extraordinary. And But what do you think it is? Because as things played out, you see he goes back to Toro Rosso. So everything happens. He goes back to Toro Rosso and starts like performing well in the top 10 and eventually Closes out with Brazil, finishing second. Granted, there there was a lot of luck that was involved, but, I mean, you got to hand it to the guy. He turned around his season completely. It was like a reset of his brain. How much mentally do you think Pierre got in the way of himself? That's all it was. You think that's all it was? was- that's all it was. It Look, I'm not... From, from the outside looking in, my only guess is that he knew who he was up against. And I think he went in there with a false sense of confidence in himself. He's a very confident guy. You think? And you no, I think you have to be to be at that level. And how he sounded in that, he uh seemed and this is I'm reverse engineering this a little bit, but like he seems very confident. But to the point to where it's like he has expectations and unrealistic expectations. Mm-hmm. So it's like he expected to be at Max's level too soon. So it doesn't help when you bin it in preseason testing, right? Then you go, and I think this is where some of the like conservative racing things, he didn't want to bin it. He didn't want that to take that chance. Mm-hmm. If you're not chances, you're not able to learn and progress as a driver, right? So you don't see that gain because he's not willing to risk it for the biscuit, as they say. Right because of those two shunts. So then he's already self-doubting himself. And he's not going to do that in public, but you could see just his body language, he was self-doubting himself. When you're that far off your teammate in the same car. Yeah. Is massive. It's brutal. Brutal. And- I mean, there were times where you were like, this is no joke. This is like a, a pro versus an amateur time difference. 
Yeah, right. Close to a second. Eight, six to eight tenths. Man. And you hear like uh, Christian Horner was talking to Helmut Marco at Monaco. They just had a clip of that. And he's saying like the, the last sector, he's losing four tenths. And they're you know? like, and, it, and there's like, we could do that. Right. You know, it's like your team principal and a guy, Helmut Marco, how old is he? 80, 70? He's up there. It's telling. Saying that he can do sector three at Monaco better than the driver, than you, the driver, the guy that's hired to be there. Very telling. It's very telling. And so he's not driving on instinct. One of the things is like, he wasn't getting the results. He's not doing anything spectacular in the races. And he has Verstappen, this plethora of data. And one thing that Christian Horner was saying is like, he's looking at too much data. And what we know, when you look at too much data, it means you're thinking too much. Yep. Rather than like feeling the car in the yes. moment, being experimental, if you will. And, and that's where I say, like, I think he, he was tight. He was driving tight, but he knows, I think he knows in his heart that he is not a Verstappen. And you there's think? nothing wrong with that, dude. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Verstappen from when he was in go-karts, people pegged him as something special. When a 15-year-old kid... 14-year-old, 15-year-old kid comes in and literally straight up demolishes <laughs> yeah. arguably three to four of the best karting drivers of the last 15 to 20 years. Mm. Straight up whoops them. People don't have anything for him. There's a lot of talk about, oh, he's cheating this. But if you talk to the real people, they were like, no, this kid is something special. Wow. Gets in a formula car immediately. The results he was getting. People knew it was like a Raikkonen type situation right you had this feeling this kid was something different and special he had that talk all the way up through his career so when you race against this kid and you've been around the similar age range right and you know it and you've you've always been compared or talked about or like around this guy but this guy's always beaten you and now your teammates with him in the same similar car you're you're gonna be mentally fucked yeah yeah, and it's now how... You didn't have that hype around you. Not at all. Yeah, not at all. You know what I mean? That fucks with you. Mm-hmm. It can fuck with you in, in, in two ways, right? The way that I think it hurt him the most is he was out to try to prove he was as good as Max. Like in a different instead of, way. like Instead of just proving he was just as good as Max by doing his job. Worthy to be there. Worthy to be there and sink or swim. If you do your job right yeah. and you're as good as you think you are, you will be on pace or slightly better than him. That's interesting because Red Bull, clearly with Alex Albon, when you move on, he wasn't beating Max. Alex Albon was not beating Max, but he they knew that he wasn't going to. And, and they, if you he, stuck way, to he stuck to the job. They, he rode the progression train. And Alex, if you listen to how he talked about everything, like the first race or two, he was like, okay, I'm a little disappointed on like, you know, because you got to be self-motivating. You got to be self-aware. If you're not self-aware, you're never going to get to this level. Yeah. You have to have that self-awareness. But you could tell that he was like, also like, it's okay. Like, I know I need to be better. I will be better. I know what I need to do to be better. But it's okay that I'm not at Max's level because I shouldn't be. That's what struck me is that Alex... And I, I think that's why he, well, I think that's one of the reasons why he kept his job for this year. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's and one of the things. And they don't need another number one, in all honesty. No. 
They need a number two that if the car's capable of finishing third and Max is, Max finishes third, you better be in fourth right behind. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what and when Max and when Max makes the has a problem or a car or something happens and the car's capable of finishing third or second be or win, guy. you're that guy. Just like that's and that's where Ricardo fit into that, right? Yeah. Is Max probably slightly better than Ricardo? Yes. But Ricardo was always there if the track fit him maybe a little bit better than Max's style or yeah. he had more experience than Max there or something happened to Max. Ricardo, they're so close, but Max probably does edge him out a little bit. That that's what that's all they need. Yeah. Think it's the same thing with Botas and Hamilton. Yeah, Botas you get- has races. He goes out and legitimately beats Hamilton mm-hmm. on pace. From free practice one qualifying to race, he has put put it to Hamilton. Yeah. But guess what? Hamilton still more times than not puts the beating on. It's because but, those types of guys, it's the world champion consistency. Yes. That's what that's what makes these guys special is like on any given day, you'll find him near about the top. And yeah, some days Botas will have his numbers. Some days Ricardo will have Verstappen's number. But throughout the championship, you better believe that the, the number one guys, those guys are going to be on top the majority of the times. And if they're not, they're only a tenth off. You know, they don't, yeah. they're only edged out by a tenth. You, you look at Botas and it's like, yeah, another example of like a guy who's very quick, very talented, very good, but the world champion, world champion consistency just isn't there. You know, you there's thought after at, at last year, after the first four races, you're like, Ooh, this yeah. is going to be another Rosper. Yeah. And Hamilton. this could really go down to reliability and just mistakes. And, and then you just see, he, I mean, he has these races, Botas, where it's just like it unravels. Unravels. Like, yeah. And Lewis Hamilton is, is a, wins a race and you finish fourth. And Lewis is a guy when he's in those races, when it's unraveling, that's when you see him charge through the field and finish fourth. Yeah. You know, and it's like you don't see that out of the other guys. It'll right. go to seventh or, you know, they'll make their way to tenth or something. But it's like it's nothing, you know. <laughs> you know, but here, this is where. This is where Hamilton, I think, is so special, is that he is the king, the king of the current generation of getting the most of what the car has on a given weekend. They will go to a track knowing Ferrari has an advantage. But he, him, in his driving and working with the engineers, gets the most out of the car capable on that weekend. Even in the middle of a race, Monaco's a great example, right? He could chalk it all to doing it for Nikki and da, 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 da. He would have done the same thing whether or not Nikki had passed or not and he was doing it for Nikki. Mm-hmm. He, the car was capable of doing it, just like the engineers told him. No, no, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine, right? There would be a lot of drivers that feel that and shut down yeah. and give up. Look, if you would have given up two, three-tenths a lap, not a lot in Formula 1, right? He gives up two, three tenths a lap as that tire degrades. He's getting passed by Max. Yeah. A guy that's very but aggressive. He got the most because he didn't overdrive the car. He knew how, and he's the king of managing his tires. Yeah. Knew what he needed to do. Whether or not he was talking on the radio, complaining, doesn't matter. He knew what his job was, and it was only to get the maximum about what the car is capable of getting because that is, in the end, that's all you can do. Yeah. And he understands that more than 
anyone else right now. And it gets to that level of thinking much sooner and much more often than a lot of guys do because it, then it starts to come into you like, okay, I am leading this race. This is a street circuit and it's hard to pass. If I can just stop up Max in the spots where maybe he would get a run on me, he's right. never going to get by me. If I, if I run a flawless race, even if my tires are blistering and they're wearing off, he's not going to get around me. You know, but it's like keeping your head in that space that you have a chance. That's like kind of what Oliver was saying the other day about uh, doing the sim race with Scott and learning from Scott Dixon. And he was like, I was stuck behind I was faster than him. I was, but I couldn't get by him for 10, 12 laps because he just knew the spots where he needed to make sure he could just check me up a little bit to get the better run off the corner, that he didn't need to be as fast here because I wasn't going to, I had no pass opportunity in that corner. So why do I need to be that fast? Yeah. Check you up a little bit, make throw off your rhythm, make sure you get the better run off the corner, and then you have nothing for the next passing zone. Yeah. Now, do you think that Gasly was at all underprepared? Is it when you're underprepared? Because it's hard to be completely prepared for something when you launch into a Red Bull seat and you're you're faced up against Max Verstappen. That's a unique position, unique opportunity in your life where you're not going to be completely ready for it. But when it is that you're underprepared and you arrive in a seat like that, is it that you're trying to learn too much at once? You're just biting off more than, than what you can chew? Or do you think it's like the Red Bull culture that puts like okay. too much pressure on performing too quickly? And so you, you harvest in the data and the guy that is out mm. there winning some races to try to be question. as good good as him. What do you think you mean, it is? Do you think do you mean do you think only the elite of elite can perform at that level that Red Bull kind of sets the expectations that they set? Is that what you're kind of thinking? Yes, but also so quickly. And it's like but, a guy like but, the, but that's what I'm saying is the only the elites can kind of do that, right? Yeah. It's very rare that you see someone at the highest, highest level, right? Once you get to that highest level that it takes three, four years later, they burst onto the scene, even though they were there, right? You see that more in like, maybe they weren't that good in Formula Ford or Formula Renault. And then all of a sudden it clicked in car racing form. And then in F3, GP2, they kind of wake up and yeah. then, they, but that kind of progression kind of, you know, it's usually not linear. It's usually like this and then, Boom, straight up. And then you're kind of, you kind of figure something out and you're there. And it could be, it could be that it's like a sink or swim and only the elite or very experienced, like a Weber, uh, can handle that. And it's hard for young drivers at that level if you aren't an elite. Yeah. I mean, it seems like in Gasly's situation, any guy coming up, similar situation, you're on the Red Bull development program. You're winning races. You can go and win the F2 championship. Then you take a, a super formula hack at it for a little bit. You're in Formula One. Uh, but Verstappen has, I mean, it can every year he's going to have more and more experience. I think, is it his fourth year in Formula One? His, I think, yeah. Something like that, that you're coming into as only a second year guy, you know, and your first year was at Toro Rosso against a guy that won on his debut with racing with Red Bull. Yeah. And so, it's a unique position because you're, you know, you're not going to be as good as Max. There's, it's just not, it's not really in the realm of possibility. Don't think you are, but you can be. Keep it open. 
But the problem is, is that if you, I don't know, do you think if you take too big of a bite out of it, kind of like what you were saying, the overconfidence a little bit, if you try to take in all of that data, well, you've never driven like that probably before in your career. You're not going to drive your best all of a sudden now that you have the best driver, one of the best drivers in Formula One right now, you have his data in front of you. So it's like you feel like that's a resource, yet you're just going to go in circles and you're yeah. not going to be driving on instinct. Yeah. Do you think that's what it could, that leap to Red Bull, I think, it, many I, I think drivers might face on, that. I think you're on to something there. I think that's definitely probably the more likely of the answers is, is that. Yeah. Well, then you have Albon. And I look, I love his, uh, just him in general. His, as you said, he's like, he's self aware. He has this humility about him that there's not an ounce of him that's cocky. Yet he's good. He's confident in himself. He knows he'll get there. But it's it's very rested on the self-awareness that you, you have to love. You have to respect yeah. it. And love you can it. tell when you, you get interviews from Christian Horner about when he's talking about Gasly, he, he was hard on him. He was hard on the guy. And then when Albon comes in and he was like, even though he's finishing fifth, which which was a really good result on his debut with them, but even when he's still off the pace a little bit to Max, he really liked Alex's approach to it. And that's the thing we don't get to see. We don't get to see those meetings at the headquarters, right? We don't get to see the in, the interactions with the team away from the track. So maybe there's something there where, you know, there's been, uh, who was it? Oh, they talk with Carlos Sainz. They're like, why are you in the factory so much? Yeah, right. And he's like, this is what I do. Why not? This is what I do. This is it. This is what I do. This is yeah. my job. Why would I not make sure I know everything about everything that I can know about this car? So who? I'm not saying this is what it was, but who's to say that they expected more from Gasly and something like that, mm. and he didn't deliver in that? And maybe Albon does a better job at delivering on that. We don't know. There's stories about people have this this uh, view of Raikkonen and that he's so turned off and like switched off away from when he's from the racetrack. And like, I know people that are very close with him and they're like, yo, this guy used to sleep at the Sauber F1 headquarters with the mechanics. Wow. At, at the end of the day, he'd bring him beers. He'd learn about everything and like literally fall asleep there. Yeah. Become and a Sauber guy. Yeah, but it was more it's it's what you it's what you how your ethos it's how like much who, you commit to it. Who you are and what you commit. It's the old saying, you know, when you're a young driver, are you willing to sweep the floors to get a ride? Are you willing to go work at that race team sweep floors for possibly the opportunity to step in their race car one time at some point? Yeah. Is that how bad you want it? And I'm not saying this is what Gazzy, but because we don't get to see that side. Well, I'm saying is, is there something to that that Red Bull expected and they didn't get? Yeah. And that's why they were so hard on him. Or was it just they really did believe in him that much that so they were hard on him because he wasn't delivering the expectations that they also had for him, so they were hard on him. Right. Because it is a sink or swim environment there. And the reason why they're maybe not as hard on on Albon is because 
of his one his approach, but two, they know he like is walking in to shark infested waters. So why make it any worse from him when he didn't get to do preseason testing? He didn't get to learn the culture in the off season. He didn't get to go visit the factory. Yes. He's still part of the Red Bull family, but you know, he didn't have all those extras that, that Gasly did have at the beginning of the season. So maybe they did give him a cut him a little bit of, yeah. you know, slack there. Yeah. So moving on to Mercedes, we talked a little bit about it. Total Wolf, they covered, and that, that actually to me stood out as like, it struck me how regimented and structured they are. I, that's expected from how successful of a team they are. And being German. And being German is the other thing. What what I really liked hearing was his leadership style, Toto Wolf, how he is more of a businessman than he is potentially, I don't know, does he have driving experience? Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, he does? Yeah. But he leaves it to the experts at all the different componentry of the cars and then the driving side and the engineering side. He leaves it to those guys and he just gives them structure to be successful. You mean he's a CEO of a company that is uber successful, just like every major CEO that's successful in business usually operates. Yes. Okay, cool. Just make sure we're on the same page there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what it is, right? I mean, he, he understands that this is a business. There are two sides of this business right? There are sales and marketing and there's operations. Okay. His main thing is operations. Yeah. He, he, he puts people in place. If he was the COO of a major organization and I can speak of this cause I do know some COOs of some big companies that every single one of them I've talked to, the main thing they, they, like to communicate when I ask them about, or just trying to learn about why they have been so successful. Every single one has told me it's because of the people they have put in place, not being gloatful of like, Oh, I picked the right people, yeah. but understanding and being able to read people and find the right people to put in place, to do the job they hired them to do. And yes, they are the leader. They're the one setting the expectations, setting the goals, setting the framework for them to work within. Yeah. Yeah. And creating that atmosphere. So if you don't create and if you don't create the atmosphere and this kind of goes back to what was talked about in, I forgot who it was, they were talking about. It's like, if you don't know your job and how you're supposed to do it and be told exactly how it's supposed to be done. Right. And what the expectations are of you in that role, how are you supposed to operate in that role? Sure. And I think that's what he's really good at is he knows, everyone knows their expectation. Everyone knows what they're supposed to do. Everyone knows what they're supposed to do to exceed expectations. Everyone knows what is not their responsibility and whose responsibility that is. Now, do you think that this is partly uncommon in racing? This, this management style, the fact, you know. Yeah, 100%. Look, he's a guy, a business guy. This is no different than Flavio Briatore when he when in when he was with Renault, right? He's a business guy. Yeah. I think there's a lot to be said. Roger Penske is a business guy. 
right? Yeah. Chip Ganassi, racer, business guy. These guys, un- these guys understand. The problem in racing, a lot of times, you have racers yeah. <laughs> that only know it from a racing standpoint. Yeah, sure. And it, you should only you can only go to a certain point with that. Right. You know? And there are some guys that cross the line, right? That 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 can that understand that maybe they went to business school or just understand things at a higher level. Yeah. But definitely for sure. Yeah. So there's a there's a page there for race teams to take out of their book. I mean, that's clearly like you Tire said. Hire the right people. And don't have an ego. You know, how many how many really successful businesses has the founder hired a CEO or CFO or something? You you hire people to do things you don't know. Yeah. Or do things that you know can be done better that you don't have the expertise in. So you can still be the founder and be proud of being the founder, but you know, if you don't understand how to, like, I would never think I could understand how to run a race team top to bottom. Right. Never. I don't, I would hire people out. Sure. hundred percent. Yeah. And that's probably an uncommon perspective in the racing industry. Probably. I think it is. I think it is. And then, okay, so you have Mercedes, such a great example of this, just completely uh, always playing out in front of us. They're always very competitive at the front. Now we're looking at Williams. Do we have to talk about Williams? Well, they were. Sorry, I'm looking for my phone. They were covered. They were covered in the thing. Um, And here's the main thing. Claire Williams talked about how, you know, when Frank, Frank Williams uh, was stepping down, how her goal was just to continue the legacy of Williams racing, the, the rich history and tradition of what it was and to protect that going forward. Do you think that it's smart to, to yes, protect the legacy and everything, but potentially not know, the pitfalls of being a team principal in formula one look rather than just putting the, you know, potentially the right personnel in place to, to, to protect that, but also to further it again, I mean, obviously we can only speak of this from what we see in the show and maybe couch quarterback, if we know anyone, right. That's all we are, dude. That's all all, (laughs) we are. We're filming this on a Monday. You're Monday (laughs) morning quarterbacking right now. And it's okay. That's okay. But I will say, I think this is a great example of what we just talked about with Mercedes. And they showed that in the videos when they were like, people were like, wait a minute, the car's not ready. Wait, this part isn't. Oh, <sighs> like people did don't know what their responsibilities and scope of their job are. They lost a part. They lost they, a, a, a flat out an integral part component of flat the car. Out, 50% of those high management executive people in any other form of business would have been fired by now. Yeah. Which of course some of them were, but it's, but the, you just, the communication, even on the episode, you're like, wait, you guys don't, you're not involved enough. 
not involved in like micromanaging. You're not involved enough of knowing what's going on in your organization. Right. And that's just, Hey, I need an update from you at the end of every day, or I need an update every week on X, Y, Z. This is your job responsibility. You need to execute this, but I still need to know what's going on. And it just seems like everyone's just off doing their own little thing with no real construct or communication between departments. And yeah, you know, the only, the things I always hear from like friends of mine that work in like, you know, especially out of college, like lower level management positions as they went into the corporate world, the worst thing that they all ever experienced in, well, the two worst things are always a boss that micromanages you and tells you how to do your job consistently. Right. Instead of letting you, letting you do it because that's what they hired you for. But the other thing is, is departments that are supposed to work together, not work together. And not be in constant communication and not understanding, you know, that we're not in competition necessarily with each other, but we're here to work together for, if, as long as the business grows, yeah. we're doing the right thing. Um, you know, it's like I've always said with the Porsche stuff, you know, when we would do it, it's like we technically are not Porsche employees, but we're Porsche employees sure. because we still are getting paid by Porsche. It's not coming from Porsche on the paycheck, but the people paying Porsche, the people paying you to do this job are really Porsche. Yeah. Right. And it's no different than that. So that, so for you to not understand that in our circumstance, right, it would have been you not understanding that you should be doing everything the Porsche way or for how Porsche wants it to be done. Yeah. The you culture, know, the culture, of the, the culture company. of it doesn't yeah. matter what the, the other company's culture necessarily is. Yeah. Right. In the end, that's who we work for. Right. So, you know, I think when they're, when you don't understand, like we're not, and the biggest thing was when you had two agencies, right. When we'd have to work with two different agencies and that's kind of where I was going with that. It's like when you have two different agencies in our, in our world of things with that, doesn't, we're not competing with that other agency Yeah. as another doing an event with, Oh, some of those people are from this other age. No, no, no. We all are with Porsche and you'd have problems with that where people didn't understand that. So I, I think I see what you're saying. Is it that there's so many different departments in a Formula One team? There's no congruence of communication within that. That's kind yeah. of what was lacking in it. Because it was. They didn't make the first two days of Formula One preseason testing. You get a total of eight days. They made six. Wasn't That's there, crazy. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. But wasn't there like where like one of the head car builders or like one of the head engineers didn't know when a part was going to be done? Um right yeah yeah where what's his name the car designer that, patty low uh, patty low it's like wait a minute but that and that's the thing it's like you would think patty low would know like how because he's been he's really legend. well legend yeah so what legend what is he not getting well no but that's there are is people it, there are people that thrive with structure right there are people that cannot thrive without structure. So do you think he wasn't getting structure? I think he maybe, he kind of seemed like he has that personality where he needs that structure. And without that structure, he kind of was like, oh, what do, uh, do I do? Am I supposed to do this? Right. How am I supposed to, you know what I mean? He seems a little bit more old school. Yes. 
And that's okay if you have really good structure. But if you lean on him for the entire building of the car, I think you might was, be in trouble. And that's where they I, found themselves. I think that's where they found themselves. Yeah, that's unfortunate because the way that it was kind of positioned in the documentary is like Patty Lowe needs to take the brunt of, of the responsibility here. He's the car designer. He's that guy. Um, but... It, I think, yeah, it goes further. It's worth talking about that because it goes, it goes past, it goes beyond his involvement per se. Yeah. There, there needs to be more structure involved. And, you know, it's, it's tough to see. You got a guy like George Russell um, that is like just swinging his, his, like he's throwing out like flyers every lap. He's trying his hardest and he's P19. But you have a guy, Robert Kubica, who was very, very competitive in his day. Granted, there's been some time um, that was lost for him. But he comes back, and George Russell's literally just demolishing him. You know what, though? It's really interesting, and I don't, I don't want to get into it too much um, because I don't think we have much to say on it because right. there's really no information. But the little bit of the comments he said after the season and his contract was up. Who? Kubica where he was talking about where he felt like he wasn't being listened to by the team and they didn't treat him as an equal to Russell. And interesting there was, and he felt, and he was saying like him with Alfa Romeo, he's like, no, this is, this is, this is what I meant. This is the, this is kind of what I was talking about with like, I'm listened to here. They respect me here, you know? And I, who knows, maybe that's just driver ego. Or maybe there is something to that, and that adds Listen, to why Williams is having as much difficulty as they are. It must be. I I gotta imagine, even the days, you know, that Robert lost. I don't think that makes him a far worse driver than what it showed in timesheets to George Russell. You gotta imagine too. Russell's on the pinnacle of momentum here, as he gets into everything. Yeah. Um. So, you know, there's a little bit of. I'm sure if if the structure isn't there. And I'm sure he's he's a Mercedes development driver. George Russell is coming into it. There's going to be a little bit of favoritism. And if he's not getting the structure that he felt at like a BMW Sauber, he's gonna feel it. And if he's talking about it, he's probably probably right to some. And you degree. know their structure at a Swiss team. Yeah, yeah. Um, so to wrap this puppy up here, um, I love it. Formula One storytelling. Love it. This is it. Drive to Survive to me, it checked all the boxes for what I could have wanted out of watching something from Formula One. Um, Too many times things go way too Hollywood, but I think a docuseries on Netflix is, my God, amazing for the sport. You got to remember, this has to serve two purposes. It's got to serve one, current fans, and it's got to bring in new fans. You have to have some Hollywood in it. The pure racer in us doesn't need the glitz and glam and the da-da-da-da-da. Because we know the culture, we know racing, we understand Formula One. We we just want the insights and the in-depth stuff we don't get to see. Yeah. But the person that doesn't know about Formula One or has heard about it and maybe has heard that it is kind of glitzing, like they need the Hollywood to be enticed in. And that's part that's one of the reasons why it's out there is to help bring in new people. Yeah. But I think it does a really good job of staying on that knife edge of being on the wrong side of either way. Yeah. I think it struck a really good balance. A yeah. really killer balance that makes you actually excited too about the sport reinvigorates yeah. you because it puts you back in that place sure there's some things that you can look past you know that isn't ideal for a race car driver but i do think it gave a good culture of it yeah. too 
that like did. the uniqueness of a race car driver, you know? And I, th I think they're changing. The, it looks like they're going to try to change the format every kind of year they do it mm. a little bit, slightly different. Really? It looks like it. Who knows? Maybe, maybe it's just because it's season one to season two, but I think yeah. they'll improve on the feedback they've gotten for season three. Well, that's the thing. Netflix doesn't really give you much. They just, Netflix will just tell you. No, but I think they'll take the feedback. You, not that they're going to, I mean, they're still going to be like, we're going to do what we want to do, but right. no, I'm, I'm, I'm pumped. I want more. I and, love it. My son I, loves it. Here's my, the thing. Nico, when he sees the logo come up on Netflix, he wants to watch it. Oh, really? Yeah. What? Nico, Nico loves it. Wow. That's so cool. Yeah. Here's the thing too. I feel, I didn't know anything about Alex Albon going into this. I didn't. I feel personally connected to him through this. I, I'm genuinely a fan of him. Yeah. Uh, and his story, seeing just his living with his family while he's racing for Red Bull Formula One in kind of I this know. smaller house and everything. It was like, man, this is this is pretty incredible. That's cool. It, it's a cool thing. And I think having that storyline, storytelling, really diving into these drivers, we all know it in racing that there's such a unique spread of people that come into racing. Like there needs to be more of this because the uniqueness you get out of a sport like racing, the money involved, the culture of it, it's, and, and high, high speed, high stakes, high risks, it's all there. I think a lot, this is the way to go. If you wanna build up the, right. the drivers in the sport, I think this is the way to go, man. This is the way to go. It's this the is the way to go. Well, cool, man. Um, just for you guys listening, we did our first Instagram live hour, happy hour, whatever you want to call it, um, on our Instagram at Cafe Machina uh, this past Friday. I think we're going to continue to do it every Friday uh, up until we're able to leave our homes <laughs> and get back to at least racing. Well, I think we're going to continue to do it until racing gets underway, even if we're allowed out and about. But I think we'll at least continue to do it every Friday um, unless something happens. 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern time. You can jump on with us. It's We're going to try to keep it to an hour. Knowing us, it's never going to stay at an hour. We couldn't even keep the first one at an hour. Yeah. So I don't see how we're going to be able to do this. But um, we brought three people on randomly yeah. to talk. Uh, a bunch of development drivers, uh, two in karting, one that raced in Formula 4 last year, uh, another one that races in the Formula 3 series, and they own a race team. So, hey, maybe you'll have a chance to jump on with us. We'll have a chat. We pretty much know most people in racing. Um, and, you know, my, that's kind of put the wrong way. We know most people in racing that mean anything. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> God damn it. Um, but, you know, we took some questions. People asked questions, and, and we try to stay uh, as interactive as we can and really make it engaged in fully engaged, uh, immersive experience for everyone. Yeah. So, you know, hop on, you know, we'll, we'll probably do it to where every other week, uh, TJ or myself will do the cafe account and we'll do our per one. We'll do our personal account. So, um, maybe this week TJ will take the cafe account and then, you, you know, he, he'll, uh, talk to some of the people that we pop on. But I mean, we had Patricia award, uh, pop on to listen for a little bit. He didn't, looks like he didn't want to talk because he didn't <laughs> respond to me, but, uh, you know, who knows you, maybe you'll get a, a listen from a, uh, famous sports car driver, Indy car driver, Oliver will probably pop on every once in a while. So yeah, you know, 
great way to uh, have a drink with us. And uh, if you're of, a, of age and enjoy a Friday before uh, getting into the weekend. Yeah. And even just watching it, all you got to do is leave a couple of comments and we'll start talking about it. And then if, if the conversation is right, we'll get you on, baby. We'll get you on. We'll drop one of us and get you on. So be ready. Be ready for that call. Um, cool. And you'll go live with everyone. It was fun. Um, and we're trying to release podcasts every Tuesday now. That's kind of the, the goal here. Tuesday morning, um, I don't know, 8 or 9 a.m. Pacific. Yep. That's on TJ. So if it doesn't go out, guys. That's on me. On this guy. This guy right there. That guy. All right. Well, TJ, it's been fun. I'm getting yelled at. It's time to go. My dog's yelling at me too. Oh, cool. Say hi to the pup for me. I will. Say hi to Nico. Wait. Does he know? Does he know me yet? He knows you. He remembers you. He does. Yeah. He says shave that stupid mustache off your face. No, he doesn't. Yeah, he does. I heard you. You got a mustache. And, I did have one. And you uncommitted, backed yeah. out of the break, backed <laughs> out of the pass there. Didn't look it. I got a lot of flack from a couple of my friends, but. Yeah, it didn't last so long. The wife didn't like it. Who cares? There was, a, there, was a kiss, there was a kiss embargo. Oh, okay. Heard about that. Yeah. yeah. So, all anyways. Right. Later, guys. Thanks again for watching. Talk Love you soon. all. Take care.